our reading today, or the Bible passage that we're going to, uh, or I'm going to be preaching from, is chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 2 to 9, if you want to keep it open in front of you. like this I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord yes and I ask you loyal yoke fellow help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life rejoice in the Lord always I'll say it again rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned from me, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. So we're continuing, as you can figure out, again, to look at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. A uh, Roman city in the north of present-day Greece. Um, has any been, anybody ever been there? Hands up. One, two. Just two. Three. Okay. Today I have, or we have, sorry, what I think on the whole is the start of his concluding remarks section. You know, he's, he's wrapping things up. And he starts off this then by addressing a specific situation that he knows of. There are two women... Udia, 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 and Syntyche, and well, we don't know what the issue is, but they are either fighting or arguing or disagreeing, and whatever it was, in some way or another, they had a fallen out over something. Now, this is of concern to Paul for a number of reasons. On one hand, it's obvious to anyone that having people disagreeing or fighting in a group is not a good thing, right? These were two people who, as we see in the next verse, had helped Paul and others greatly in the work of the gospel. And you know what it's like. If you're working with a group, you're doing good work, and everyone's on board, but there are two people who don't get on with each other, and until that's addressed, you've got to tiptoe around the issue. You've got to be wary of mentioning their name in the other person's presence. And if the two of them are in the same room together, depending on their mood, then everyone is aware of what's going on. And it undermines the goal of the group. So from a very practical viewpoint, Paul would, of course, seek to have them reconcile with each other. Paul has a goal, which is the spread of the gospel. And having two people at each other undermines that goal. He also has a personal reason. We didn't read it today. But at just at the end of last week's reading, in verse 1, he calls them his joy and crown. And really what he's doing there is, he, he, and I want, I want you to see that, he, he has invested a lot in these people, 
and he gets a lot out of them in return. He's got no interest in seeing a disagreement between two wreck, uh, either the two in question or the church. It would hurt him too much, apart from anything else, and that's understandable. I, I keep an eye on the developments in my own home church. Of course, that's often a cover just you know, for keeping up on the gossip, but I try to keep in touch so that I can pray and help out as I, if I can, if I will, right? They mean something to me, and what they do for God means something to me. And in the last reason he has for bringing up this situation with these two women is that given throughout the whole letter, he has made repeated mention of how they should love each other. Everybody should love each other. Christians should love each other and be like Christ. Even saying at one point that their unity in the face of oppression is a sign to unbelievers of their common judgment. It's imperative then that they are united. And in the rest of the New Testament, many of you will have heard of the one and others. These are the ways in which the New Testament lists how we are to treat one another. Uh, I learned recently that there are 47 of them. And if you categorize them, you would find that essentially they say four things. Love each other, serve each other, be humble, and be united. So, and unity, in fact, covers one third of those. So anything that comes in the way of our unity, our love in each other, must be opposed and not only that, not only because it's a command and it's fitting for those of us who claim to follow Christ, but also we have to be united because how we treat each other is one of the most powerful ways we can show people all this Jesus stuff is true. Jesus himself said, people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And if you're separated, how are you going to do that? Often, of course, this isn't the reality in churches, is it? I got a friend who used to work with a mediation company. Uh, this is a crowd who, if two or more people or two groups are fighting and are not getting along as they should and you don't know what to do, you go, you go to these guys and they try and help you out. And he told me once that every Monday morning they would get new, new case files. And in those files, every week, or almost every week, one or more of those cases would be from a church. And in fact, I rang him there during the week to confirm this and just to ask him a few questions. And he told me that there was so much church work that they actually formed a specific church-focused task group who would deal exclusively with churches. It's not good, is it? And then, uh, uh, remember that thing up in Bat in the Hinch? Where they were, they were fighting in the church so much that the police had to come in for a couple of Sundays in a row? Now, whatever about the obvious damage that I'm sure that does to the people in the church, what, 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 what does that look like to the watching world when they pick up the Belfast Telegraph and they see people baiting each other inside in church? Or whatever they saw. But it's no wonder Paul makes this, it's no wonder then that Paul makes this very sincere and direct appeal to them to stop whatever it is that's going on between them and it's also no wonder that his solution for them is to be of one mind in the Lord. You see this phrase, in the Lord, well, if you remember, I talked a good bit about it a few weeks ago, about rejoicing in the Lord. And what I said then was that rejoicing in the Lord is essentially Paul's command to us to take delight in everything that we have in and results from the gospel. Here, though, he ain't saying rejoice in the Lord. He says, be of one mind in the Lord. 
And again, what he's doing is he's pointing these two women to all that they have and all that they should do because they are Christians. You see, for Paul, being a Christian has a lot of meanings. The gospel that makes us Christians is in one sense, it's very simple. You're saved from the rod of God, by the love of God, through the justice of God, to do the work of God. But actually, when you dig into it, it's not so simple because the effects of that message in us and the implications of that for us are endless. So effectively, what we see Paul doing time and time again is using this phrase, in the Lord, I think he uses it 45 times or something like that, as a shorthand way of pointing the person to the gospel where they will find all the reasons they need to do what they need to do and all the power they need to do what they need to do. And so when he says, be a one mind in the Lord, he's pointing these ladies to the much bigger picture of everything that we have because of Christ. And in light of that reality, their fight, their squabble, whatever it is, it's got to dissipate. It must cease. And it can cease. Likewise, if you're in the same situation today, if you are fighting with someone here, You've got to find in the gospel the reason and the strength to make up with whoever you're fighting with. Now the thing is, right, I know full well that many of you have been in situations in churches where you've seen people falling out. In fact, I know some of you are now members here because you left your old church because of the toxic atmosphere that was there. So you're probably thinking now, all right, Charity, be of one mind in the Lord, is it? It's that simple. Right. And if you're saying that, you're saying it because you know full well that when people fall out, they don't fall in again without some work. And yet Paul's counsel here is precisely that. To be of some mind, in, be of the same mind in the Lord. Now as I said, he's pointing them to a much larger vision. He's giving them a reminder that there are things that are true, that are far more important than whatever they're falling out over is. And he's also reminding them to seek out in the gospel itself the reasons and the power to overcome their differences. But still, why wouldn't he know? Why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't he, you know, maybe list out some of these gospel implications and effects that would help them to see past their difference? Why doesn't he do that? Is he so heavenly minded that he has forgotten how life works in the real world? Is his confidence in people to get over their pastoral hearts misplaced? Is his confidence in the gospel misplaced? Not at all. The thing is, you see, it's not all theory and well wishes from Paul. Firstly, notice he pleads with both of them. He doesn't say, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche. Instead, he, play, he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. He makes an appeal to both of them individually. Paul knows the story, you see. In nearly every situation like this, both parties will feel aggrieved to some degree over something that the other did. Even if actually one of them is far more guiltier or completely guilty than the other. It doesn't matter because for them to be reconciled will mean both of them will need to give up something. Both of them will need to apologize and both will need to find and obey, will need to obey and find strength in the gospel. So nearly every time, right, myself and Erica have an argument, 
actually every time we argue over something that wasn't sorted right in the moment. You know, so if she calls, or if I call her out, or she calls me out on something that happened as it happens, that's one thing. But if the problem is something that takes a while to make itself clear, or if it happens and the two of us bury it and keep going, whenever we do get around to addressing it or making it up, even if the initial problem was solely the cause of one or the other of us, there's always apologizing to be done on both sides. You see, I or she might be the guilty party, usually me. No, yeah, it is usually me, actually. <laughs> I don't want to play into this thing of like, oh, wives are great and men are not, you know. Sometimes it's the other way around. I, it is, it's true. You know it's true. I or she might be the guilty party with respect to what caused it in the first place, but guilt accumulates to both sides in how we dealt with it, how we ignored it, and how we let it run on. So there's always something. It takes both sides to come together. And actually, if as a Christian you're there saying to yourself, well, you know, she did this to me. I ain't going saying nothing until she makes the first move. No, 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 no. As Paul does to these two women, I now say to you, God calls both of you to move to each other. Now, um, you know, I, I, let me just flag this up. I'm not talking about a situation of abuse or severe manipulation. Uh, you don't need to be moving towards that person right now. Let me just say that. I'm not talking about that. The second practical thing, then, besides just this theory of being in, in the Lord that Paul uses to help them overcome their differences, is that he asks this loyal yoke fellow to help them. And loyal yoke fellow is almost certainly uh, the name of a man, uh, but that's just his name. The different naming practices to us, obviously. But why does he ask him in particular? We, we don't know. But nonetheless, he doesn't leave the two women to do this on their own. That's the thing. You see, God is an, he's an earthly God. He made the earth. He made man from the clay of the ground. He gives us sacraments that we can see and feel. He knows that our faith needs tangible help. I say this because I know some of you would be tempted at least to think that this business of considering what being in the Lord means as a means of conflict resolution is just a pious, holy roller strategy for thinking your way into a better state of mind that has no feet on it. But the relationship our faith has to the unity we have for our brothers and sisters is not just an interior thing that we wrestle with. Because as he advises here, it's something that we talk and we do as well in community. Specifically then, the very easy lesson for us here is if we can help people who are in this situation, then we should, just, we should do just that. Do you know of some people in here who have fallen out with each other? Or in your Christian circles? Can you say or do something which will bring them back together? Then do it. Now, as I said, this section is it's like his um, concluding remarks section. He's laying out how to act in light of all that has gone before. And maybe you found it odd that he would mention a dispute between two people in such a public way. You know, it might be awkward if Jill had a little paragraph in the update naming and pleading with two of ye to get on with each other in the Lord. 
Well, it might be. It might be because you might be doing that because they are, you know, these two ladies are some sort of leaders in the church, and as such, he feels no hesitation about naming them and effectively calling them out because they have a higher standard. And certainly, in some of his other letters, where there were huge problems, he rarely calls people out by name. Yeah, he does here. And yet, although I think I've made it clear that he, he has some good reasons for getting them to agree with each other, it still doesn't fully explain why he would name them like that rather than just make a general plea to the congregation. I don't know. But I do know that the effect of bringing such a dispute out in the open would have been a bit unsettling. So I don't think it's any surprise that immediately in the next verse he turns back to the theme of joy in the Lord again. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. And again I say rejoice. I was worried the last time I spoke when I talked that I was talking too much about or when I talked about rejoicing in the Lord that I was making this little phrase of Paul carry too much meaning. But then I came to this passage and I was like, nah, I got it on the nail. Paul uses this phrase in the Lord. It really does point to the most fundamental and powerful truths of the gospel. And all the actions that one could do because of those truths. In the Lord is everything that is good about being a Christian. This is his way of commanding us to rest in, to delight in, to be moved by everything that we have because of the gospel. Everything that we have because we are on the Lord. It's the same thing really. And this is why he mentions this here as well. My point is really that if you can set your heart and mind on the truths that Christ won for us at the cross and true through the tomb you will find what you need to approach all the people you have hurt and all the people who have hurt you anyway he reminds them of rejoicing in the Lord because of course to see two of your upstanding members fighting especially in light of all the great things he's been talking of and in light of the ongoing general persecution the church faces that Christoph told us about last week It's absolutely right that Paul would point them back to rejoicing in the Lord. He's got to remind them of the bigger picture. If word got out, say, for instance, that Christoph was having a fight with some of the elders, would that worry you? Of course it would. That's why you need reminding that the kingdom of God doesn't begin and end with the leaders of the church. There is a bigger picture. There is a bigger reality. And we serve and we live according to that. Again, though... As with his first plea to the two women, he doesn't just remind them of the practice of looking to all we have in the gospel and reminding and rejoicing in it. He goes on to talk about something very practical, prayer. Now, this is a, a fairly well-known verse from the Bible. Probably millions of sermons have been preached on this verse alone. And probably those sermons take the pattern of jumping off this verse to talk about prayer in general. And I got no problem with that at all. Often, preaching from just one verse misses the context and so misses some of the nuance that is necessary to do justice to what the author was really saying. But in this case, I don't think it matters. Because, of course, it goes without saying that the more general principle here of praying in all situations is true. And let me say it straight. You know, the, the simple lesson is uh, pray more. Pray about everything. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. So let's do that. Um, yeah, let's get the finger out and the hands together. 
We need to pray more. But folks, if we would only remember this, I keep forgetting it. And yet it's amazing because the reward of prayer in times of anxiety is peace. This peace that transcends all understanding, it's a real thing. Only this week I was fretting about something and I remember this verse because I was writing my sermon as I was doing it and I prayed and there was a change. I want to be clear what this change is not. It, It isn't the promise to get you what you want. Peace doesn't come because you're suddenly sure that what you need will arrive. He does not guarantee that here. He is a good God, but that doesn't mean he gives you everything you want, even if what you want is good. This is also not uh, just kind of common wisdom. Most of you, I'm sure, will have experienced a situation where you're worried about something and you talk about it with someone and afterwards you feel better, right? You feel more prepared to face the issue at hand. A problem shared is a problem halved, this kind of thing. Okay, perhaps as you talk you might experience some of that. But that's not what he's talking about here. What changes is not your situation, though it might. What changes is not your belief in your ability to face the situation, though that might too. And those things aren't bad either. Don't, hear, don't get me wrong. The, the, the longings that fill our heart are still valid. The desire to know what to do in a situation is good. But the change that takes place when the peace of God comes is neither practical nor situation dependent. It is a straight up act of grace. And in some way, we don't know how that works. But God grants us a peace. It's a supernatural thing. It's not understandable in in that how it works, we don't know. But according to what Paul says here, at least, its effects are explainable. Again, he uses this phrase, in Christ Jesus. He says that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I, I don't need to go over all that again. But suffice to say, the peace of God works on us to cause us to protect what we think and what we feel because of the gospel. This keeps us safe. The end result of prayer then is a supernatural peace that's not driven either by changing our circumstances or even in our ability to face those circumstances. It's driven by God bringing us under his truth and as we pray, God helps us to rest in him. And you know, that's why prayer is is a great thing to do because whatever you're praying about, whether it's something really small that's affecting you, like some of our, or if it's, you know, like some of our brothers and sisters around the world who are praying as they feel four fingers and a thumb on their forehead and a knife to their throat. And that's a bit of a drastic image to, ne- to nearly finish this on. So let me say this. Verses 8 and 9 here, again, are well-known verses. And I'm not going to dig into them too much. I'm fairly sure he's not saying anything tremendously new here. He's effectively restating what he's been saying all along. Keep your mind and your heart on the things of God. Although, if anything, he's widened out the definition a bit. I come from a generation of Christians, I think it's fair to say, that has reacted against the perceived over-conservatism of the previous Christian generation. For example... I have, well, they don't anymore, but I had some older Christian brothers and sisters who would, 
who taught you should never play card games, for example. Now that's not something that I've ever felt constrained by. But again, the end result of that kind of thing has been a sort of reaction where some of the Christian disciplines of the past are seen as outdated or cheesy. But this passage is actually proactively telling us to think about some things and by direct direct inference to not think about other stuff. Like consider, consider for a second these six things. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. And he sums them up into excellent or praiseworthy. Right now, look, don't, don't even mind, you know, the regular really bad stuff, the filth that you find in your head and your heart, you know, the hatred, the lust, the jealousy and envy, all that stuff. But... What, whatever about that stuff, how much of the boring, everyday, sinful rubbish that goes through our head would fail to pass under the heading of those six things that he asks us to think about? And I know, I know a statement like that puts a lot of pressure on us. It sounds like a counsel of perfection. And you know what? It is. But Paul's never worried about telling people to be blameless, to be pure. He does it often. And so neither am I. As much as hearing those words to shape my thought life towards good and away from bad feel daunting, I will try again today. Because not only does it honor my God who died to save me, who created me, but he promises here that as we do this, God stands at the door of our hearts. I don't expect to ever feel a hand on my head and a knife to my neck. But if I do... I hope I'll be the man who faces this with a prayer. We've all got challenges. But there's a clear message here to fight as much as we can to direct our thoughts to whatever is good and to pray in accordance with our circumstance. The Lord promises peace for those of us who do so. Amen.